Hello everyone, it's Isabella from Feminist Food Journal. It's an honor to bring you this story as part of our milk issue. I originally set out to write a story about Jewish kosher food laws, which include not mixing milk with meat, and what these mean for women's unpaid labor and their position in private and public life. That story will have to wait, because I found that in the process, this one became something else entirely. Although the link to milk is a little more precarious, I hope that you'll enjoy it nonetheless. A couple of years ago, my mom gave me a set of two books. One is called A Treasure for My Daughter, The Handbook for the Jewish Home. The inside of the cover page is inscribed, To Isabella, With Love, Mother. The other book is called Second Helpings, Please. It's stamped with the Star of David. In the middle of the star, it says Iconic Jewish Cookbook. The cover promises quick and easy, low calorie, and capital letter microwave recipes and tips. The inside of this one's cover is inscribed. To my darling Isabella, if food be the music of life, eat on. All my love forever and ever, mommy. These inscriptions are both copied from much older editions of the same books that my mom's mom gave her. All that's changed is the addition of my name, Isabella, instead of my mom's, Emily. Food is indeed the music of life in my family. I had to look up where the quote in the book came from, and it turns out it wasn't even originally about food. My mom came from a long line of actors, actresses, and general theater aficionados, and the original version of that line opens Shakespeare's The Twelfth Night. But it flips the noun and changes a few letters. If music be the food of love, play on. You'd have to really be thinking about food to rearrange it. And I guess that's what my grandmother was doing. I never had the chance to meet this grandmother. She passed away when my mom was six months pregnant with me, her first child, at the age of 26. But from family photos, I can see her in my mind. Big curly hair, dyed red and occasionally permed, shoulder-padded blazers, a megawatt smile framed with bright orange-red lipstick that left a mark on everybody she kissed. And from my mom's stories, I can almost sense her. I can taste her famous brisket and potato kugel, smell her YSL Perry perfume, hear her goad my mom into knocking off school so they could go shopping. Good food, drink, and company was the motor of her life. My mom always said that her mother wanted to be just like Julia Child. Heavily influenced by time spent in Europe, she would cook Jewish food on the holidays, but otherwise it was all buttery French richness, which was considered modern at the time. My mom says that they used to joke, do you want some greens with your butter? My grandmother loved to cook and entertain, and despite the piety of some of her recipe books, that kitchen was about as non-kosher as one could get. She would serve creamy sauces slathered over rich red meats, standing rib roasts were a favorite, and baked cookies and jack at dinner parties until kingdom come. And outside of the house, well, my mom remembers her family holidays as being all about the food. We'd have breakfast, she said, thinking about where we're going for lunch. And then we'd have lunch and be thinking about where we were going to get dinner. It must have been hard for my mom to lose her mother so young, right when she was about to become a mother herself. But if the loss left her unmoored, she never let us see it. 
My mom inherited her mother's love of cooking delicious food in spades, although meats and bechamel sauce were more often than not replaced by hearty soups made of organic veggies. She made us eat organic before eating organic was cool. She threw together bean burritos and fried rice before soccer practices, piano recitals, dance performances. She came to school with a griddle in hand around the holidays, the token Jewish parent, to show our classmates how to make latkes. She didn't always cook like a good kosher mom, but she sure took care of us like one. Growing up, my brother and I were pretty busy. I guess as busy as many 20th century North American kids, but my mom never let us go out without a home-cooked meal. She was so wary of processed food that what originally brought me and one of my oldest friends together was her desire to bring me a cheese string snack for every lunch in kindergarten, as if she felt sorry for me and my Ziploc bag of cinnamon-sprinkled apple slices. Aside from the occasional pizza pop after school with the babysitter, most of the time my mom was around to make sure that she cooked for us. She worked part-time as an early childhood educator, and so she would come home early in the afternoon, while my dad, an engineer, stayed at the office until the end of the usual working day. A treasure from my daughter says that it was written, to answer the questions of young Jewish women who want reliable advice on how to carry out traditional Jewish practices, and to learn to cook just like mother. It's probably better that it fell into my hands at age 26, because cooking like mother was never something that interested me when I was growing up. It's not that I didn't want to cook like mother, I just didn't want to cook at all. My brother had a special knack for cooking, at least as a hobby, and all the ooing and eyeing over his prodigious skill set put me off, the way it works with so many things between siblings. I didn't want to compete with him, so I went off in my own direction. That direction took me to journalism, and then to a master's degree in international affairs that led to me working in Nepal with a project focused on health and employment initiatives for women in remote villages around the Kathmandu Valley. It was a wonderful experience, but at the same time I struggled, badly, with some of the things that I saw. The project I was working for involved discussions about chapati, a practice of segregating menstruating women to huts. It's illegal in Nepal, but still practiced in some rural areas, and has resulted in many women's deaths. At the same time, I was witnessing casual sexism on part of men from the project's funding organization almost every day. It was particularly directed towards the local women on staff, and a lot of the behavior fit what at the time I was just beginning to call sexual harassment. All of this left me feeling angry, angry and confused, and along with the rising appreciation I had for just how tight the patriarchy's grip is on many workplaces, I was feeling like someone, somewhere, hadn't prepared me for this confronting reality. It's a privilege to grow up with very little understanding of how being a woman can limit you. My parents always told me that I could be whatever I want to be, the usual for a secular, progressive family like ours at the time. But they never warned me that sometimes someone might try to stop you from being what you can be. And if you don't navigate it with the impossibly complex mix of grace, tenacity, firmness, acceptance, avoidance, that person might just succeed. This meant that I spent much of my time in Nepal deep in a morass of my own questions on what it meant to be a feminist. Did I need to take a stand at work over the behavior I found reprehensible? I was only 23 years old. What if it impacted my nascent career and I was flagged as a troublemaker? There were women menstruating in huts at the mercy of cold weather and wild animals. How could anyone with the privilege to safely speak up choose to stay silent on any women's issues, to not pursue power in the workplace and use it to take down the patriarchy? 
If women were in charge of everything, would this all be different? That summer, my mom came to visit me. We hadn't seen each other in eight months. She came in the trenches of monsoon season, when the air was thick with humidity and mosquitoes were having their annual banquet. She arrived late one afternoon, and we boarded a bus bound for Pokhara, a city about 200 kilometers away, early the next morning. It was an eight-hour ride, so we had time to catch up. One of the first things my mom wanted to know was how my work on the project was going. Pretty good, I told her. It's really interesting, and I'm learning a lot. It's inspiring to see so many women working in jobs that weren't accessible to them before, like masonry and carpentry. The bus bounced over a few potholes, and we stopped on the side of the road to eat a boiled egg. My mom wanted to know how the women managed work with motherhood. They take turns watching each other's kids, I said, or the kids come to work with them. I remembered how my mom would be at the gates the second school got out. The thought of my mom willingly cutting down on fulfilling employment to cook for us and encourage us to practice the Harry Potter theme song on piano, when so many women around the world were being confined by social norms to the home, suddenly seemed unbearable to me. I turned to face her fully. Yeah, not exactly like you choosing to stay home more while dad kept working as usual and building up his career. But I wanted to be with you and your brother. My mom said. I wanted to cook for you, spend time with you. Those years don't come back. Well, I said, I think it was wrong of you to sacrifice them. It was anti-feminist. Those years didn't come back for you either. Her face crumpled. But don't you think that the kind of person you are now might have to do with the fact that I chose to stay home to be around to raise you? She said. Her voice broke into a sob. My heart contracted. I'd made my mom cry on her first day visiting me in Nepal. I thought back to all the meals that she cooked from scratch and served to us. The years that she spent, well, really serving us. I thought of how good our family's kitchen always smelled. The same whiff of comfort and care that my grandmother's kitchen must have had. Where food was the music of life. The rhythm that kept us moving forward. My mom's non-kosher kitchen, where she chose to peel and chop and steam to make sure that we were powered up and fed for whatever extracurricular activity was going to help prepare us to become competent, capable adults. On that bus, I said sorry after sorry, and as it flew over potholes and lurched across precipitous mountain passes, the tension between us began to subside. But deep down, I knew that the damage was done. I like to think that there's more nuance in the feminism that I live, learn, and unlearn today. I place less emphasis on individual choices and save my energy for thinking about how to dismantle the oppressive systems that constrain them. And I don't purport to have all the answers. Frankly, I don't think I would be the same person I am today if my mom hadn't spent so much time at home with me reading, cooking, and generally supporting me in every single way possible. Second Helpings, Please, one of the books that my mom gave to me, is truly a joy-making piece of literature. By now self-aware of its own ridiculousness, with recipes like cocktail wiener quickies, which is hot dogs rolled in ketchup and cornflakes, and chilled tomato juice straight from the can for the women's luncheon menu, the contemporary edition remains steeped in late 60s nostalgia. 
It's even kept the original three stanza poems used to introduce each section of the book, with rhymes like guests for dinner, gee, that's nice, knishes, kreplach, Chinese rice. But A Treasure for My Daughter, the other book, is truly a treasure, a relic from a different time, even though it's now in its 14th edition. The effect of having set up chapter introductions as conversations between a mother and a daughter could, and sometimes does, come across as contrived, playing into every trope of a Jewish mother-daughter connection. But there's something about its obvious sincerity that always makes my throat tighten a little. Sometimes I'll take it off the bookshelf, and in the table of contents, somewhere above the recent edition of Suggestions for Inclusive Prayer Language, I trace my finger over Passover, one of the only Jewish holidays my family regularly celebrated, with my mom's mozzarella soup, much more than Moses, the real protagonist of the evening. I flip to page 91 and read some of the stilted dialogue, which explains the history of Passover and why this holiday is important. The daughter asks her mother why the Pharaoh ordered all male children born to the Israelites to be drowned. Her mother gives her the Cliff Notes version, summing up family feuds and gruesome plagues to get to the part that's my personal favorite, the matzah. Having to leave so suddenly, her mother said, they could not stop to prepare their food or wait until the bread would leaven. They took their dough with them unleavened and baked it in the sun. The daughter asks, I suppose that is why we eat matzah during the eight days of Passover? Of course, her mother replies. Matzah is a reminder of unleavened bread, which the Hebrews prepared in such haste when they fled from Egypt. It is now a symbol of liberty. So there you have it. I guess my mom's matzah ball soup was a symbol of her liberty all along. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Feminist Food Journal, bringing you an audio story as part of our milk issue. Script writing and research by me, Isabella Vera. Sound editing by me and the brilliant Zoe Johnson. And original music by the Electric Muffin Research Kitchen. If you'd like to get in touch with us about an idea for a podcast, drop us a line at hello at feministfoodjournal.com.